because, I think it's actually making more sense, actually. I think the volatility is causing things to make more sense and become a little less lopsided and focused in one particular area. And I think that long term, that's creating more stability. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast, real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. You know, it seems every time I go to a conference these days, uh, someone somewhere is talking about data and the explosion of new data and AI and how we look at it and how it's poised to change real estate and how we invest and how we assess risk and on and on and on. And gee, all this information we can get from a cell phone and goodness knows what else we're getting. Uh, but it's important that we back up just a little bit and understand how to use the data we already have and, and how we gain actionable intelligence from that, from, from your basic lease comps, sales comps, other property details that we've, we've always collected, but, but maybe we haven't really assessed it the way that we should. And I feel like we haven't quite gotten a handle on some of that. And, and that's why I'm really glad that, uh, that Comstack founder and CEO, Michael Mandel, uh, decided to join us on the podcast today to share some of the things he's observed and learned as his company has really, really embraced data and, and data that makes sense in the real estate context. So thank you so much, Michael, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So why don't, why don't we start a little bit with, with how, um, what is it that we in real estate don't get? Um, how is it that we're approaching the data question, maybe in a way that isn't really helping us? Or what is it that we need to learn to go forward? Sure. Well, I think there's different schools of thought. And what we don't get varies on who we are. Um, you know, you've got kind of your old school players who are used to, you know, and obsessed with walking the building to understand a commercial real estate asset um, and trusting, you know, their relationships to get feedback on what's happening in the market and where things are going and where they're not going, which, of course, particularly in an environment like this where things are rapidly changing, is important, but maybe not relying as much on truly what the data is saying. Then on the flip side, you've got some new entrants in the, in the data market who are praising the use of alternative data sets uh, to analyze real estate. And, you know, I, I joke, but, you know, I, I talk to people who legitimately, you know, with some of these newer platforms are saying, Oh, we can back into the value of a commercial real estate asset based off of its proximity to parks or number of trees outside the building or, you know, where they where they are in relation to incidents of crime and public safety and things like that. And, you know, that, that those are interesting data sets. But what I see when I when I hear from companies that are focusing on those things like that is, OK, you're trying to back into something because you don't have the real fundamental data. So you're trying to find some alternative data to do it, but that's not the right solution. You don't make up data based off of alternative data sets and reach erroneous conclusions. You know, number of number of trees in relation to a property is not a good indicator of what the property is worth. Um, but fundamentally, you know, if you're looking at a commercial real estate asset that's income producing, the value of that asset is driven by the rents in that property, the income produced by that property, right? And what encapsulates things like public safety and number of trees and, you know, walk scores and everything you can imagine, the rents themselves, right? Play more desirable locations drive, you know, have higher rents. And so if you have the rental information, you have a good sense of what's going on in that property. But 
what I think is really interesting with some of these new alternative data sets is that if you can solve for the fundamentals, you can use those other data sets at the margin, perhaps to uncover something that isn't um, fully uncovered within the rent itself, right? You've got two properties and they're both right near each other and they both have great access to public transportation and they were built in a similar time frame, and you know they are achieving similar rents. But maybe you determine that actually there's something about one of those properties. Maybe it is the number of trees outside or maybe it is some other situation that is that would actually justify that it should get a little bit higher rents. And maybe you can un- uncover that, use that additional information and decide that maybe you're going to pay a couple bucks more for that building and figure out how to take advantage uh, of those factors. And so I think if you can solve for the fundamentals, then you can leverage those the alternative data sets. But, you know, for a lot of our clients, solving for the fundamentals is something they haven't even done. Um, they don't, they haven't even made sense of their own internal data, let alone market data. And you really need to have a strong handle on what's going on within your properties and with, and across your portfolio, as well as, you know, what's going on within the market that could drive the, you know, the performance of your portfolio. Yeah. Well, I often feel that the, that the way we define data is, is a little squishy. Um, you know, when we talk about things as fundamental as rent, we should be able to understand what that is. But to a certain extent, sometimes we can't get a handle on it, whether it's because of different reporting characteristics and how things are coming in. It's, I mean, do you spend a lot of time kind of worrying about the, the cleanliness, if you will, of, of the data and how you just make it something that's reliable and useful? Absolutely. Right. I mean, so at Comstack, um, what we're known for is is our crowdsource data. Right. So we have a network of 35,000 commercial real estate brokers, appraisers and research people who give us data to get other data back out. And by virtue of the fact that we're crowdsourcing data, it means that we're getting data in millions of different formats. You know, we've got people giving us data in you know, Excel spreadsheets in the body of an email, pictures of napkins, you know, scanned PDFs, really dirty, unstructured data. And, you know, we're also getting data that's a function of what people have heard about what's going on in the market. So we need to do a lot of work in validating the data, cross-referencing different versions of the data that we receive, and just cleaning it up as a means to get it in, not to mention, you know, what, what I think you were referencing, which is creating consistency across a market and across multiple markets and every single market is different, right? I mean, um, in, in California, most rents are quoted per square foot per month, but not for instance, if you're in downtown San Francisco, then they're per square foot per year, but right outside, you know, they're per square foot per month. Um, you know, in, some markets they'll refer to rents as gross rents, but in you know um, other markets it's full service gross. Is there a difference? Is it the same? You know what what does it mean by market? What does modified gross mean in a in a given market? Because it could there's there's a ex- expectation of what modified gross means in a particular market, but modified gross just means that it's not gross and it's not net. It's modified. Well, what is that? You know you have to really understand the, the nuance of each market and each deal. Um, and you then have to be able to adjust for those to be able to make sense of things across the market or across multiple markets. It, it, it's, it, it strikes me time and time again how, you know, how localized and how individualized our industry has been, partially because it, it, it really hasn't had to embrace kind of data consistency to the point that you can have vehement conversations about what you mean by NOI 
within the same firm that everyone's using different formulas. And, and I find that disturbing, <laughs> um, that a lot of things that we think are standard are not. Um, are you discovering with the, the groups that you, you, that you are uh, working with and you're serving that as the data cleans up, are they able to see things that they couldn't see before? hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of nuances there and that's why it's important to roll up the data and every deal has its own story too. You know, um, that's the other thing is like, even when the data is perfect, it's hard to take it at face value, you know, two, two deals and, you know, one has a hundred dollars in tenant improvement allowance and the other one has zero dollars in tenant improvement allowance. But did you know that the one that has zero dollars was, you know, a previous, hedge fund installation that was built to $1,000 a square foot. And then they went out of business after a year and it's beautiful turnkey, you know, gold plated space. I mean, you know, all these things come into play. So um, you got to normalize it, but you also need to, when, when possible, look at the nuances of every piece that goes into it when you can. Um, but and also call into question some of the some of the assumptions that people make. It's like everybody models a five percent vacancy loss. Why five percent? I don't know. They don't know. They just do it. That's what they do. It's like you know nobody knows. <laughs> I love the assumptions, but okay. So just to, to uh, re restate what's already been said, so I make sure that I understand um, that there's that you believe in the fundamentals and the fundamental data that that has always been a part of real estate or should have been, even though we're not always using it. Uh, but you do not dismiss the potential value of some of this alt alternate data source. How are we going to take both the fundamental and the new stuff that's coming at us? And how does that get incorporated into an investment strategy? How do we move ourselves away from, oh, I've walked the space, I've talked to the broker, I, I have this feel for where it's going, and I saw X number of people with piercings, therefore it's a hip area that's going to become the next Brooklyn. Those kinds of those heuristics that we've used in our business for hundreds of years. How do we move from that to being able to make better investment decisions with the data? Well, you know, this might surprise you, but to some extent, I think that we might be moving to more of that. Um, long term. And, and what I mean by that is I think that what you need to do is get all the data in one place. You get all of your internal data in one place and you have a great resources for, resource for external data. Now, if all of the data is in, if all of your data is clean and normalized and beautiful and all the external data that you have is clean and normalized and beautiful and you bring it together, well, theoretically in a, in a perfect you know, market, right, a, an efficient market, everybody's going to be underwriting every asset the same exact way. Right, you know, use the market-driven cap rates. Everybody's arriving at the same NOI based off the same calculations and the same underlying data. And if everybody's reaching the same conclusion, then everybody's going to buy everything for the same price, um, and so or sell everything for the same price. And so what that means is that then you have to then apply creativity and more of the qualitative, you know, aspects um, to to what you do in order to determine that you want to pay more than anybody else for an asset or don't want to buy an asset. So I think like you know. Number one is getting your own data cleaned up and getting great market data. You know, then I think then you can leverage data science teams to try to figure out and, and, and maximize around the fringes of some of these alternative data sets. And I think what you might end up seeing is that you've got some firms that get their fundamental data straight and then apply creativity to the, to the, you know, the fringes, some firms that get their, their fundamental data state straight and then apply data science and some that try to do both 
right? And I think probably the ideal scenario is you kind of go with fundamentals followed by data science to leverage alternative data sets and, and uncover opportunities. But I think there's always going to be a need and a place for people who show creativity to find a new approach to something um, to, to see an opportunity. Well, what I like about that is it's it's counter to the argument you usually hear, where people are resisting uh, kind of data science and, and and alternative data sets, saying, "Well, you know, not, you know, it's either my gut or that," and, and it becomes this either or, and it's not really that binary. Um, it it seems that what you're saying is that that uh, to a certain extent, if we get our data house in order, we're going to be able to be more creative. We're going to be able to perhaps refine what our gut can tell us as we go forward. I think you're going to have to be right. You're going to have no choice because because you got to work under the assumption that everybody's going to get there, that the market's going to get there, and then you have to be, you know, um, you know, creative in your in your approach. So, all right, put your your crystal ball in front of you, and, and let, let's look at how this plays out. Your firm and others have been really kind of in this data race and, and prop tech space, uh, trying to to kind of perhaps replace some of the broken processes or, or less than optimal processes that we have. Where are we going with this? How do you think our industry is changing and will change over the next several years? Good question. I, I, I do believe we will become more data-driven. Um, I think that what will be interesting to see is in what way we become more data-driven. And what I mean by that is you've got all of these firms hiring data scientists and building out data science groups. Um, now you've got actually a tough economic time where I could, where, you know, it takes time to, to figure out how to make money off of those groups. So I think you're going to see some in this environment pull back and say, you know what, this is a luxury that we can't afford right now. Um, and, and rely more on, on third parties um, and others who are going to focus on it and double down and use that as an opportunity to find, you know, to find new opportunities in this market. And so what I think you're going to see is there's going to be some really big, you know, real estate investors, the the Blackstones and the Starwoods of the world, you know, who are going to um, leverage a lot of data science in-house to and their own internal data to make decisions. And it's going to be, you know, a differentiator for them. I think the majority are going to realize that this is too much work and too hard to to do something special in-house and they're going to find third parties to leverage. But um, first and foremost, everybody's going to be investing more in, in the data itself and the data is going to become more transparent for everyone because you can't do anything without the data. Uh, and no, no matter how fancy your data science is, I mean, you actually, you can afford to have your data science be a lot less fancy if you've got more data accessible to you. I like that. I like, I like keeping it simple. It, it, quite often, the whole data science part of this can feel like a bit of a black box. So you talk about the importance of transparency. How how do we ensure that, that that transparency is happening when these data science folks who sometimes don't even know anything about real estate come up with these interesting connections and conclusions across data sets? I don't think that's going to be a problem because in my experience... None of the none of the real estate people trust the data scientists uh, and what they come up with at face value. Like they're already calling all of it into question and looking for a lot to support and back up what what those teams come up with. Um, so maybe 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 uh, as there's maybe more of a generational shift, people rely on them more. But I think that a lot of these data scientists are learning the hard way that they can't just 
do their work in isolation and, and present the black box to the stakeholders and have them be happy with it. You've got too many people in the industry that are that are grounded in the nuts and bolts of this that are not going to trust trust this without some real evidence behind it. Is there anything that you you look at the way people are approaching this that you're that you're worried about that you think, gosh, this is a road that we probably shouldn't be going down. Other than just you know counting how many trees are near your your property line, um, but you know, I wonder, are there things that you feel like people just probably should back off from what they're doing and, and move in a slightly different direction? That's a good question. I mean, I think that um, one thing that's been, we've been noticing a lot of has been, as of late, an obsession with alternative asset classes. You know, so I think, you know, the the yields for core office assets and major markets weren't there and cap rate compression was real. And so everybody was looking at secondary markets and secondary asset classes. And now, of course, um, you know, that that tide has been changing. Um, I think that a lot of what's happening actually now is actually going to be quite good in the long term um, for the industry from the standpoint that people are realizing that, you know, office isn't completely uh, this perfect asset class that can't ever go down, right? So there's there's more diversification across portfolios, which I think is going to be good from a stability standpoint. But I do wonder a bit about um, some of the alternative asset classes that people are going after, because the reality is this, it's all cyclical. You know, what, what asset class and what market is popular today is not going to be popular tomorrow. And, and figuring out which one is going to be popular before you know, all of the yield has been driven out of that sector is not so easy. And um, I, I think that um, what I hope is happening, but it's unclear if it's really happening, is I, I think that there's going to need to be better portfolio strategy in the industry. And I think that what you're going to see is probably some of these, some smaller players um, are going to get pushed out um, because I think that some of the bigger institutional players have figured out how to go after some more of the niche plays and they're going to go after more of the niche plays in-house as part of their broader portfolio strategy um which means that it'll be harder to make money in any one of these niche areas for any player that goes only after that niche area which probably pushes out a lot more of the small guys and creates more of the bigger players which is a trend we've been seeing already anyway you know the bigger getting bigger um and so um, I think that that's probably overall a good thing, you know, for the market. I think um, there's more and more professionalism in the industry and more institutional players. And I think that's generally good. Uh, but it can also be risky in and of itself because some of these larger institutional players are looking at smaller time horizons in their investments. And so they don't always make the safest, cleanest decisions either. Um so I don't know. I guess um, maybe I took that to that question in in a, in a weird direction, but um, I I think fundamentally, actually, a lot of what I'm seeing in the market mostly makes sense um, as long as it's done within a reasonable portfolio strategy. I just love that. I don't think I've heard someone say that the market mostly makes sense in in recent times. It's been so volatile. But I think you, you've got a point there. I think this idea that... Well, I think, it's because, I think it's actually making more sense, actually. I think the volatility is causing people to... Causing things to make more sense and become a little less lopsided and focused in one particular area. And I think that long-term, that's creating more stability. Um, similarly, you know, I think that, um, it, you know, 
thinking about recessions, right? In the in the great financial crisis, you know, New York City, for instance, was so dominated by financial players, and the whole financial industry went to crap, and the and New York took a huge hit, and then in its place came all these you know tech companies and media companies, and and New York City, the New York City office stock got much more diverse, which of course now you know, what's been happening in tech has not been good for New York office, but on the whole, I think that, you know, it, it actually creates less volatility in this office market, um, for, for instance, when there's not as much concentration in one industry. And so I think that every real estate investor needs to be thinking about, how, you know, their, their portfolio strategy. It, it's almost like a lot of what you're saying is we need to, we need to understand our fundamentals in terms of data. We need to stick to our knitting and actually do portfolio strategy. Um, we have to do all those things that we are supposed to do. Um, and it seems like the volatility is pushing us to some extent to do that. We can't rely on, on uh, the momentum, perhaps, at the moment uh, to save us from ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, the other thing, too, is with interest rates, you know, where they are and where they were, there was it was causing people to make decisions that were not the safest because they were trying to find yield wherever they could, right? Because it was so hard. <laughs> and, and so um, any extreme kind of pushes people to make poor decisions, I think. And so I, I, I think that this ultimately, what's happening right now is ultimately good for the industry. Well, I, I think I agree. And, and thank you, Michael, for, for spending a little bit of time with us. Uh, Michael Mandel is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Comstack. Uh, where they are providing some of that fundamental data, discipline, and strategy to help uh, a lot of investors. So thank you again, Michael, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. A fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. Though A fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information, the opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of A fire.